So good morning to each and every person in here. Good morning to those of you who are joining us online. And um, I'm happy to be here with you today. So the last time I was up here, it was just my wife and I. We came to Kearney about nine months ago. It was just her and I just, li- just living it up. And uh, we have expanded our family. I wanted to share that with you all. We have a baby on the way October 8th of 2022. And two weeks ago, I need to lament for a little bit. I, I was supposed to, we were supposed to find out the gender of the baby. And we went to the OB. And uh, when she first scanned uh, uh, the uh, baby, the uh, stomach, uh, of course, uh, the baby was in this position. And then she, the OB kept on pressing against my wife's stomach to get the baby to turn and would wiggle up like this and then it would go back down and then it would wiggle up and then go back down and uh, my heart hurts. So I need you guys to pray because I already have a rebellious kid. So, so, <laughs> so let us pray and then we're going to dig into the word of God. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you are doing with your people. Lord, I pray that your word would be glorified and uh, you would be glorified in your, your word and that your people would be convicted and they would know that you love them and that you care for them. And they would know that you require of us, you require that justice and righteousness saturate our life. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we are in the book of Amos, and last week Jordan did a great job at helping you work through how to find the minor prophets in the Bible. And I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to tell you to just go straight to the table of contents <laughs> um, and find Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5, verse 20, and we're going to be in verse 24. Amos chapter 5, verse 24. And as, as you see in your bulletin, the, the title is, Let Justice Roll Down. Let Justice Roll Down. Over the past 10 years, I've been struck by our country's attempt to talk about and wrestle through issues of justice. And as a sophomore in college, it wasn't until the beginning of the unjust shooting of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman, I began to realize, or I began to observe potent manifestations of rage, indifference, vitriolic accusations against communities of color, and policing of emotions from my white brothers and sisters in the name of being angry and not sinning, did I realize issues of racial injustice and many other, issue, and many other justice issues are still vibrant in our country. And furthermore, I've been perplexed and discouraged and angry and at times depressed over how some Christians have addressed issues of justice. On one hand, I truly see, a, I truly see communities of color in deep pain and constantly aware of this country's past and how America has failed time and time again to live up to its values. And rightly so, I think we need to be angry But I've also seen some communities of Christians allow their anger to return in ways that fall short of God's intentional design that he placed in his word. 
And I tell you this because I've observed both communities fall short by forgetting who they are in Christ and what God and 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 what God says about the kind of people we must be. And today my question is what kind of person does God require of us not simply want us to be but require of us to be demands of us to be in light of the issues we face in the world but more specifically here in Kearney Nebraska. And before you think that this is an acerbic political diatribe seeking to propagate a leftist agenda and tell white people how bad they are it is not. The point of of this message is so that I can permeate, so that God tells his people through his prophet Amos that justice and righteousness must saturate God's people. And if you find yourself turned off by the word justice, be patient and see what God says because the word justice, it permeates the, the Bible and we believe that God is a just God. That justice is one of the characteristics of God. And essentially what we are asking is who and or what do we associate our identity with? Justice and righteousness must saturate God's people. So what we're going to do in this message is we're going to give a little bit of context to the story of Israel and how Amos got to the point of prophesying to Israel. And then after we do that, we're going to dive into our scripture in Amos chapter 5. And then after we do do, do that, we're going to define justice as this, as concrete actions to make things right. And then we're going to define righteousness as people and right relationships that eventually result in justice and equity and equality. So let's, dig into the, so let's dig into the importance of why God demanded Israel to be a nation, and he's demanding that Kearney, Nebraska, that the residents of Kearney, Nebraska, that his people in Kearney, Nebraska, be people that are saturated by God's passion for justice and righteousness. And last week, Jordan did a great job at giving us an overview of Israel and the history of Israel and how they got to the point where they were in, in, in the book of Hosea. And the Israelites, just to give you uh, just some, some more background, as, you, as many of you know, that the Israelites... They were under the oppression of the Egyptians. They were under the control of the Egyptians. And as a result of them being under the oppression of the Egyptians, they had to suffer injustice. They had to suffer under the Egyptians' unjust policies. They had to suffer, uh, they, they had to suffer under the Egyptians not seeing the Imago Dei or the image of God inside of them. They had to suffer over slavery. They were not their own. So God raises up this man named Moses, and and Moses delivers them from the hegemony of the Egyptians. And after Moses delivers them out of this oppressive society, God gives them the Mosaic law, or God gives them his covenant. And in this covenant, what, what God outlines is how they are going to be God's people. Now, we don't necessarily use this word covenant in the 21st century, but covenant means an oath or binding promise made by one person to fulfill to another person in a specific way to bless or serve them. For example, many of you in here who are married, when you were married, you made a covenant with your spouse. 
Husbands made a covenant with their wives and, and, and said that you will serve your wife. You will take care of her. You will protect her. You will grill for her, do whatever she wants. And then wives, on the, on, on the other hand, you made a covenant with your husband promising to rub his back, promising to make food for him five days a week when he comes back from work. No, I'm joking. That's a joke. <laughs> that, that, that's a joke. I don't believe that. Right? <laughs> that is a joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's loosen up a little bit. All right. <laughs> so, a covenant is a promise. So you promise to do you you promise to do certain things in the future. And the, the central idea of the covenant that God made with Israel, and that God makes in the Bible with His people, is this: We are God's people, and He is our God. We are God's people, and He is our God. Or, in other words, we belong to Him. And we are under his loving rule. In other words, we worship no other gods. And when it comes to God, he rules our hearts and we have no other idols. And when you read the, the, the prophets, what the prophets are doing is that they are giving us insight into Israel's relationship with God. So either the prophets are pointing them to the law and saying, good job, or the prophets are condemning them and accusing them of not obeying God. And we get some insight into Amos. We get some insight into Israel's relationship with God during the time of Amos. And if you turn to chapter 1 of Amos, what you would recognize in chapter 1 of Amos all the way to chapter 3 of Amos, the book of Amos, the first chapter and the first few verses, opens up and sets the tone and the background of the book. And the book opens up with saying, The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, who had, a, who had a vision from the Lord concerning Israel before the earthquake when Uzziah was king, and Ju- was, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Joash, was king of Israel. And basically, Amos was a shepherd. And in other words, when you see that he's a shepherd here in the scripture, it means that he had ownership over herds, or in other words, he had some money. He was very rich. And so, so, so Amos is a prophet who is from the northern kingdom of Israel, who goes to the southern kingdom of Israel during a time, uh, no, he, he is from the southern kingdom of Israel, and he prophesies to the northern kingdom of Israel, and he's prophesying during a time when there's economic prosperity, when there's, when, when there's economic wealth, and he is accusing them of injustice. And that, that, that's why we can never conflate economic prosperity and justice and political prosperity and health with God's blessing. And then, and, and, and then the verse in chapter 1 continues, and it sets the tone for the, the tone and the mood of the text after the text tells us the background and the context of, uh, of who Amos was prophesying to and what year he was prophesying. Well, not necessarily the, the year, but, but the context of, of, of what he was prophesying and who he was prophesying to. It says this, the Lord roars and thunders. I don't know about you, but if God is roaring and, and if he is thundering, it scares me. And the following question that we need to ask here is, what makes God roar and thunder? And if there's something that makes God roar and thunder, then we should pay attention. Or why was God angry? 
And God was angry because social injustice permeated the land. And even further, social injustice permeated the land, the people of Israel. And this is what God says about them in chapter 2. He says this, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, have not kept his decrees, and they were led astray by false gods, the gods of their ancestors. So in chapter 1, we, we see God accusing nations, and then t- chapter 2, we see God accusing other nations, and then when you get to chapter 3, God accuses Israel. And he says this at, at the beginning of chapter 3, he says, hear this, or in other words, listen to what I am saying, because what I'm saying is extremely important. He says, listen to this people of Israel, and he addresses them as a whole, and we're going to talk about that. The word of the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family. I have brought you up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you. And the implication and the emphasis here is that is, is this. Because Israel were, they were the people of God, they knew God's law, and they knew that they were not supposed to reflect any regimes that were like the regimes that they were under back in Egypt, but they were supposed to serve as an example to other nations. And then God says, because you should have known better, I'm going to punish you. I'm coming after you. Because social injustice permeates the, the land. But then God give, gives them an opportunity, many opportunities to repent of their sins. And God says, come to me. In chapter 4, he says, seek me and do good. But they refuse to seek him. And then when they re- refuse to seek him, this is how God responds in chapter 5. And then if you, if you look in chapter 5, verse 1, what you will see is God says it again. Hear this word. Thus saith the Lord are themes throughout the whole book, and God is emphasizing that these people, he's commanding them to listen, pay attention to what, what God is about to say, and, as, and also we must pay attention here to what God is about to say to us in Kearney, Nebraska. So God says, hear this word, Israel, and then he says, this lament, this lament I take up concerning you. This word lament, it means an elegy or a dirge. And an elegy or a dirge is a poem of serious reflection that is usually used for someone who passed away. What makes God lament? Or even a better question is, what makes God want to craft a death poem for his people? Or what, what do we have to do as God's people? What do we have to do as Kearney, N- Nebraska? What do we have to do to get on, God, on, get on God's everlasting holy nerve? Now let's take a look at our main verse here. Our main verse in, in Amos chapter 5, verse 24, it says, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Amos, what he does here is he compares justice rolling down like a, like a river stream and righteousness like an eternal supply of water. And one, one of the reasons why he is doing this, the context of what he is talking about, if you read the previous ver- verses, what you will recognize is that God is saying that he hates, he despises Israel's religious festivals. He says that he despises their assemblies. Their assemblies are a stench to him. 
And then he goes on to say, but let justice roll down. And the implication is that all these people are putting up an appearance of piety, but in practice, they are dead. But in practice, there, there is social injustice that permeates the land. And if we are going to call ourselves true worshipers of God, we must actively engage in justice and righteousness. Love and commitment to God is connected to how we treat others. But more specifically in the text, love for God is reflected in how they treated poor people in the court or in the place of power, in the place where policies are enacted. And the point that he is trying to get, uh, uh, the point that he is trying to get across here is that in the places of legal power, where leaders make decisions that affect their constituents, leaders express their love for God in making policies that do not oppress or marginalize the poor. They couldn't say that they truly loved God and worshiped him and they, and they were creating systems where poor people could not thrive and they were taken advantage of. So what is justice and what is righteousness? Justice is central to God's character. It's central to the character of God. And if you find, you'll look in Psalm chapter 89, verse 14, it reads this. It says, justice and righteousness are the foundation of your home. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, God is just. And Tim, Timothy Keller, in his article about justice, quotes Herman Bovink, the great theologian. He says, God's justice is both retributive and reparative. It not only punishes evildoing, but it restores those who are victims of injustice. Yet, interestingly, God's restorative justice is far more prominent in Scripture than his retributive, his retributive justice. Justice is making concrete actions, concrete actions, is taking concrete actions to make things right. So what was it that Israel needed to make right in this text? If you look at chapters 1 to 4, what you will see is that Israel was guilty of their barbarous behavior in war, their callousness, oppressing the poor, robbing them of justice, selling people into debt slavery. And God said that as a nation, they turned away from allowing God's word to permeate their life. They were more concerned about political and economic and military advancement than taking care of people. When God wanted them to engage in actively dismantling unjust systems that create and perpetuate inequality. Listen to the words of Psalm 41 verse 1. It says, blessed is the one who considers the poor. And this word consider means, in other words, as Christians, we have an obligation from God to be keenly aware of injustice, poverty, systemic racism, homelessness, abortion. Yet, and we must also be cognizant of why they exist so that we can help to radically change the life of, the poor, of our poor brothers and sisters who are made in the image of God. And then listen to what Job chapter 29 verse, says, verse 17 says. It says, I broke the jaws of godless oppressors and plucked their victims from their teeth. Please don't go and actually do that. But what he means here is that in, in, in other words, he was actively engaged in social battles in order to fix oppression, the oppression of other people. 
And then in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 8 to 9, it says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Who in Carney needs advocacy? And what, what do these verses mean for us? It means that these verses point to the fact that actively taking steps towards justice supposes that poor people and immigrants don't have equal rights. Therefore, instead of propagating insulting and offensive claims like build the wall, how about we fight for building relationships with immigrants and poor people who are seeking asylum and a better way of life from crime and unstable life, food and shelter insecurity. These verses also teach us that we are not born with an even plate where, people, where everybody have a reasonable disbursement of resources and chances. And righteousness teaches us that when we are, we are people, when, when, is when people are in right relationships that eventually re- result in justice and equality and equity, not being partial. But what are some of the barriers to justice and righteousness that we need to deal with inside of this text? One of the, ba- one of the, bar- one of the barriers that, that the people of God had with justice and executing righteousness is that there was a decentralization of God and his word. If you look at chapters 2, verse 4, you see that Israel rejected God's law. They did not keep his decrees, and they worshiped other gods. In other words, social injustice and oppression thrived in the land for two reasons. Two reasons. Israel failed to allow God's law to permeate their life. The word of God was not central. Second, they committed their allegiance to false gods that did not reflect the one true God that ultimately executes justice and creates, through his law, a society that structures its regime under God's just rules. Where is injustice happening in the text? And then also, not only where is injustice happening in, in the text, who is responsible? Where is injustice happening in, in the text and who is responsible? Injustice is happening in the courts, in the places of power. They were withholding justice from individuals who did not have money, which led them to being criminalized for essentially not having the resources of the rich. And but what's interesting, when God addresses people in here, what I see in the text is that he addresses them as a nation. He addresses them as a whole. Now, lots of people get turned off when we start talking about corporate responsibility when it comes to oppression and, and injustice and social injustice. Some people say, if, if I am an in- individual, how am I responsible for the oppression of other people? Does God really hold everyone, hold ev- everyone responsible? And there are several scriptures in the Bible that we don't have time to actually go through and explicate. But in Joshua chapter 7, you see that God holds people corporately responsible. And then you also see in 2 Samuel chapter 21, in Amos chapter 1 and 2, in Acts chapter 2, and in Ezra chapter 9, and in Daniel chapter 9. And one of the greatest examples of corporate responsibility was when Jesus was punished for the sins of this, of this world, for the sins he did not create. So where is injustice happening in Kearney, Nebraska? And what can we do about it? Where is injustice happening in our land? And what can we do about it? Now, 
I, I'll say this. Our, our doctrine of sin, it teaches that no society is void of injustices. No society is void of injustices. And I need to confess that, be, that uh, Mackenzie and I, my wife and I, she's over there looking fine and dandy. Uh, <laughs> um, I just got distracted there. <laughs> um, so we're from Phil- we are from Philadelphia, as, as most of you know. So, we, we don't, so I don't have the same affinity that many people have for, for Carney. Because uh, we just moved here nine, nine, nine months ago, and that takes time to develop, of course. And just by way of observations that I've made, I've made many observations of, of Kearney. And Kearney is a, so, so, so far, it's been a great place. So far, uh, people here, you guys are just, are nice. You guys are nice people. Uh, you, you, you guys are so nice that uh, you, you guys created the finger wave for the farmers, you know, when you drive by. And if you don't, I mean, some, I remember one day I was driving, some, so, someone gave me something else, but um, I, was like, I was like, wait, that's not consistent with, uh, with Carney. <laughs> but um, God, God bless his soul. Is, are you in here? No, nah, I'm joking. But um, yeah, so we, I don't have the same affinity for Carney, but what I've, what, what, what I've realized is that Carney is a place that people love, is a place that people really, really care about, nice parks, and there are really nice people here. And, um, uh, some, and, and, and one of the observations I made, and I, I could be wrong, but this is, some, but, but this is something from my perspective. Some, sometimes when I, when, when, when I talk to people about Carney, it almost seems as if Carney is some sort of utopia, as if nothing uh, wrong goes on. Um, and people here just, just love it. Um, and which is great, and which is a which is a huge blessing, but I've experienced some uh, not so good things in Kearney, uh, and I, and also I, I've met other people, people of color who have experienced some things in Kearney, that uh, makes it hard to, uh, I guess sometimes live here when things come up. So I just want to share some of the stories, and this connects to where where injustice is happening in Kearney. And, I, and our corporate responsibility to address these things. So one, one, one of the first instances of what Mackenzie and I experienced, we used to live on 25th Avenue. And um, when we first moved here, we wanted to get to know the neighborhood. And then we, we heard there was this coffee shop named Baristas. And we walked to Baristas. We got our little coffee. You know, we, we, and it was like 90 degrees outside. And when we were walking back that dangerous uh, intersection, that dang- the, the overpass or um, that bridge, uh, we walked past the library and then whew, I, I turned right and there's a store, there's, there's this huge Confederate flag there. And it wasn't the Confederate flag that, I mean, yeah, I guess it did turn me off a little bit, but then it was the sign that was connected to the Confederate flag. It said, I don't remember exactly what it said, but it alluded to the fact that no one is going to get them to, to, to take it down. And I was like, ooh, that's pretty, that's pretty bold. And then one of the second instances was there was a family who was telling me a story of when their kids were called the N-word with the hard E-R. 
And they were trying to get people to do something about it, but nobody did anything about it. And then I have a personal experience with a person in Kearney where they were telling me that blacks should be with blacks and whites should be with whites. And, and the context of that, of that conversation was that person was trying to get to know me and I, I told them that my wife was white or they, they asked me if my wife is white or black. And this person, after I proceeded to tell them that my wife is white, they began, to re, they began to recall how things used to be and how they should be right now. So, she, so this person said, uh, white people should be with white people and black people should marry black people. Now, th- this is someone saying this to, to me, and I was the wrong person to say that to because, you know, I, I, lovingly address pe- I, I, I lovingly address people in a stern way if, if something like that comes up. And then there is a student here uh, that I uh, work, work with, and, and this student goes to Kearney High School. And the, the student told me that there are other students, and I'm meeting with the principal on Monday uh, to discuss this, that was calling this student monkey. And you using racial slurs that people in the 60s used to use, and saying that this student's dad left for milk and never came back. And then also at Kearney High School, there are students who regularly use the, the N-word from what I have, have heard from, other student, from another student there. And then also the uh, last instance of where injustice is happening in Kearney and our corporate responsibility is this. I was speaking to an individual one day and they were telling me that during the height of the coronavirus, their child was working, one of their family members was working at a restaurant. And this, in, this individual was an Asian individual. And there were customers in the restaurant, restaurant who was refusing to receive services from this Asian individual. And no one did anything about it. And these are a few stories of what I've experienced and what other people have experienced in Kearney, of injustices in Kearney. And I believe that we have a corporate responsibility to accept. No, we have a corporate responsibility. Or all these points, all these instances are not just simply individual instances. Yes, they are individual instances, but they, point, they also point to a culture here in Kearney. And all these point to corporate acceptance and failure to challenge injustice in Kearney. But then how can, we allow injust- how can we allow justice and righteousness to always characterize our life? And I'm going to point you to what the text says. You know, I was trying to think about some of this creative thing to say, but I was like, you know what, what does the text say? What, what, what does the text call us to do? Because if I think about it, then there's really, no, there's really not that much authority over it. But if, if this is what the text is saying, then I'll just tell you what Jesus said, okay? So... It says, repent and turn to God. You'll see that time and time again, I think in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, or in one of those. Repent and turn to God. Repentance, what it does is that it acknowledges that we are sinful and as a, and as a result subject to distort justice and righteousness. 
But here's the hope. As Christians, we believe that we have hope. We, we believe that this is not the end. But the promise in repentance is that God will cleanse us of our tendency to distort justice and righteousness. And if we choose to repent, the Holy Spirit will do its work in destroying our blind spots when it comes to injustice. And furthermore, what repentance does is that it helps us to actively seek ways to do justice, whether it's in our relationships or systemically. It causes us to take up the cause of God in reforming the systems of carnage to his systems. And what repentance does is that it also frees me from any allegiance to any political or social affiliations and allows us to walk in true, radical, countercultural, biblical justice. So how can we do this? I'm T minus two minutes and 33 seconds. So I'm going to go through this quickly. I'm sorry. Get involved with the storehouse if you can. We have a storehouse here. You can help the storehouse to interrupt the cycles of poverty and help to mentor individuals who need mentoring. But then also, there's an individual that I met. His name is Alex Mahundi. He is the president and founder of a program called Axios Program. And the purpose of the program is to help to interrupt uh, also cycles of poverty, but through mentoring students reaching out to the next generation. You, you, you can help by donating to the program. And then, all, and then also, I encourage you, as parents, to disciple your kids, to have these conversations with your, with your kids because um, it is important. And we're, yeah, it's, it's very important because what essentially I, I find is that we are a product of where we come from. As much as people, you know, we, 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 we always talk about individualism in America, but you are, we are a product of where we come from. So let's change that. Let's, let's see the places where we are blind and let's ask God. Let's turn back to the word of God and let's humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. Don't humble yourself in front of me. Humble yourself in front of the mighty hand of God and he will help you. Let us pray. Lord, we cannot do anything without you. Lord, we confess the ways that we have been complacent on issues of of justice. Lord, we know that you care about these things and you want us or you you require of us, we must be people who are saturated by justice and righteousness. So help us to do that, Lord. Essentially, Lord, help us to be the people that you have called us to be. Cause us, bother us, Lord, in, in a good way. Push us and convict us. And help us, Lord, to know that you love justice and you, you are a God of justice because you love us. Because you care about us and you don't want to see your creation hurt. And help us to do the same. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.